Welcome back to Highly Respected. I'm your host, Scott Greer. Today, we're going to have another incredible episode, just like always. And so we've got a lot of great topics for you guys today. So hopefully you sit back and enjoy and appreciate the show. And obviously, the topic we're going to be talking about is the same we talked about last week because this is the number one news item in the world, and that is the Israeli conflict and everything going on in the Middle East and what to expect from that. And there's also other themes that I'm going to bring up. It's the uh, chaotic situation in Washington. Uh, Republicans don't have a leader, (laughs) don't have a House Speaker. Uh, Biden is growing even more senile, and there is just nobody driving in Washington. But we will go to the situation with Israel and primarily what's, what's happening on the domestic front and how people are responding to it. And... I think the real thing to note is how insane this conflict is driving people. It's the level of discourse on Twitter, particularly, I mean, from like the Israel supporters is just insane. It is just frankly insane. It's like, you know, these people have lost their mind. And it's just showing that all these people, like, they talk about caring about America. Like, they're like, oh, we're America first, too. And that all goes aside to them obsessing over Israel. And it's, like, showing their true country that they are. Like, Ben Shapiro's, like, uh, rants on his show have just been insane. Like, he, he's, he, you know, somebody said it's like the time for facts is over. The age of feelings has begun, <laughs> uh, which is which is true. He has on his show. It's just completely emotional, near tears, rants, diatribes about anyone who is not pro-Israel enough. And last week, you know, we're just not gonna. It might not be the most structured podcast today because we're gonna be riffing on a bunch of different topics. So going with the, you know, how insane people are, is his reaction to Tucker Carlson's view on what's going on in Israel. And Tucker was, you know, he did, you know, a sober, level-headed, balanced show on the Israel subject and how we need to primarily focus on America and our borders rather than what's going on in Israel. And he brought up how, you know, tens of thousands of Americans are killed by fentanyl every year and drugs. Fair point. And Shapiro just lost it. Lost it on Tucker. I think most people listening to this would have been aware of this, but it's just like, he's like, you know, Tucker, you just don't understand. People, uh, uh, how is Hamas like fentanyl? Uh, people choose to shoot fentanyl into their arms. Hamas went and shot these kids. And he's just like losing his mind. He's just like really angry. He's just like, he's about to like, start yelling in Yiddish at at Tucker over his many crimes. And it's just like he's getting worked up about it. And the other interesting thing from that rant is not just that that's what's expressed by Ben Shapiro. And Ben Shapiro is arguably, now with Tucker gone, you could argue that Ben Shapiro is the most influential voice in conservative media, or at least his institution of Daily Wire, which not everyone in the Daily Wire is going full-on insane Zionism. I mean... Walsh is Matt Walsh is having some um, different takes. Candace Owens is defending people who are uh, being uh, opposed to the war and not going full on uh, full blown Zionism, uh, war hawk mode. 
And so there's a few people, which that's probably putting them in hot water at Daily Wire, but everyone else is just gung-ho about it. And Mark Levin is is going crazy. Fox News is going crazy. Like the stuff that boomers would listen to from talk radio, their favorite Daily Wire podcast, and, and as I said, Fox News, you know, they're full on like, you know, dead babies, decapitated babies, Hamas, bloodthirsty killers. It's time to wipe Gaza off the map. And maybe that's not the, the best mentality to have going into what could be potentially a regional or even a global war that could emerge from this. And not uh, not good to indulge that type of bloodlust. But yeah, that's just like one aspect of it. it's going crazy. And also all these people have been good, began turning on Tucker. It's all these DeSantoids who have been sucking off Tucker for months. Uh, you know, someone like Dave Reboy and a lot of these other DeSantoids who are always like, oh, I love Tucker, or look how I'm friends with Tucker, look! And now they're turning on Tucker because he um, was insufficiently pro-Israel. And he made the point that we should focus more on America's problems than others. But there's all the, there's that's not like all conservatives, because I think one thing is, you know, with the new media environment, especially with the new Twitter, people are able to express their views and are learn about different views that they would have otherwise never been exposed to in years past. And you are seeing a lot of conservatives question the narrative. I mean, the number of people who are, you know, fairly big personalities who are sharing Nick Fuentes clips uh, was incredible. I mean, Lauren Chen, who uh, would probably know that it's it's not maybe not the best career move was sharing a talk, uh, was sharing a Nick Fuentes clip and saying like he's more reasonable than the entire political establishment on this. And if you're listening to like Mark Levin, yeah, that would probably be the case. You know that they you know t- that Nick is offering a more uh, reasonable, well balanced, uh, level headed view of the conflict than a lot of these people who are supposed to be telling the boomers what to think. You know, as I said, like Levin. Uh, Shapiro and others and I mean they're just going totally insane but you're so you're seeing that content and conservatives are really upset about it because it's usually the younger conservative crowd who you know and I think this is different from millennials and and zoomers when it comes to conservative commentators because you know I came up in this 10 years ago you know I've got my first political job over 10 years ago actually and back in 2013 and all these kids who are like dopey gentile kids from state schools were like rapidly pro-israel and they weren't even like christian evangel they weren't even evangelicals too and uh, some of them were but a lot of them weren't a lot of them weren't even catholic and i was like always weirded it's like why do you are that into israel that doesn't make any much sense but it's just the content that they consumed at that time it would have been more it would have been the same exact content that the boomers enjoyed like the talk radio and uh, national review and that type of stuff and that is what the level discourse is now for the younger crowd for a lot of these gen z guys you know they're not listening and and following along to the same boomer stuff that you know the others are and they're not listening to people who are gung-ho israel you know they are listening to people like nick they're listening to uh, I don't know if they're listening to highly respected, but maybe they're listening to highly respected. I don't really talk about this issue as much as others, but you know they're talking, they're li- following along to a lot of different content, and they're not as hyped up on this. And I think for a lot of people, you know, the unless they grew up in like a very type of 
Christian Zionist environment, and that's a you know a lot of evangelicals are into this stuff. I don't think they would have been exposed to this viewpoint, and a lot of the conservative content that they have been reading and watching isn't as obsessively pro-Israel as it was before. It's either focused on other topics, and it, when it comes to foreign policy, it has a much more non-interventionist line. I think that's a big reason why. Uh, that's another big reason why that people aren't as you know, going to war, you know, bloodthirsty as they would have been in the past is that there's this non-interventionism that has become much more popular among younger conservatives. Like, you know, they've been hearing normal conservatives tell them about how they shouldn't be involved in Ukraine, that Ukraine is a waste of American tax dollars. You know, Zelensky's a bad guy. You know, look at the failures of Iraq and Afghanistan and Libya. Why should we be continuing to do one of these foreign interventions? And so for a lot of the younger crowd, they see like, oh, you know, a lot of American neoconservative foreign policy is bad. And then they see this Israel conflict that, you know, emerges and they've seen all the content and all the things that they've learned about Ukraine. And they're much more skeptical about it. They, you know, they're especially these stories that are coming out, you know. A lot of people are aware of what the propaganda war that was going on in Ukraine with both sides like claiming these atrocity propaganda. And they're seeing this stuff again with Israel and they're much more skeptical about it. They're not wanting to beat the war drum. They're aware of what happened in these past foreign inventions. They're aware of what's going on in Ukraine and how that doesn't benefit America. And they're much more inclined to non-interventionism than interventionist neoconservatism. So that is a big reason that I think that there's a change in youngers. And so if you're looking at all the people that are mad about it, it's generally the people with the younger audience, you know, Lauren Chen, uh, some of these other TPUSA influencers who are saying this stuff, Elijah Schaefer, even though Elijah Schaefer is a little bit, uh, they're trying to push him out more of Connie, but he still has a large, you know, normie con audience. Um, Lauren Chen absolutely does. And, you know, and definitely with Charlie Kirk, which is that's probably the funniest thing is like Charlie Kirk, you know, is really pro Israel. <laughs> but the fact that he doesn't follow the line, you know, he was wondering whether this might have been a false flag allowed by Israel. And, you know, he was questioning about, you know, attacking the Warhawks and stuff. It is like very milquetoast stuff. And even then, they've you know they're like this guy is an anti semite. You know Ben Dominich is like, and all these other losers are saying like this guy is an anti semite. TPUSA is going to be an anti semite organization unless they replace Charlie Kirk. And it's like who the hell are they going to replace him with? Like probably the people they would replace him with like believe this even stronger you know views on this matter than Charlie Kirk. And it's like who else is going to do that with Charlie Kirk? And it's always like the funny thing when an organization is. You know, obviously there are problems with Kirk, but, you know, outside of the problems with Kirk, you know, TPUSA is fundamentally a project centered around him in the same way that Project Veritas was a pro was centered around James O'Keefe. And the idiots behind Project Veritas are like, we can get rid of James O'Keefe and keep the institution going. But then they get rid of O'Keefe and it immediately shuts down. They don't have a person in the waiting to take it over. And, you know, that's what happens with you know, the same thing would happen with TPUSA if they got rid of Kirk. It's just a funny suggestion they would make. That aside, that's outside of the problems with Kirk. I think that's just a fact of the matter. Is like, you know, if they got rid of Kirk, it would no longer be TPUSA. A lot of probably it wouldn't be as big as it was before. 
you know, it's tied to that persona. There's not like somebody waiting in the wings. Like it's like they're expecting like Ben Shapiro to become head of TPSA or somebody like that, or just some random Daily Wire personality um, who's uh, follows the line. But it's also it is interesting that all these conservatives are who are more online have a more online audience, a younger audience are not as thrilled with Israel and are more going to an anti-interventionist line. And that's like mainstream conservative world. That's outside, obviously with a dissident right, that goes without saying what its opinion on Israel is and the conflict, but you know, it's all not interventionist. So, uh, but even for normie conservative world, but it's hard to see how that is going to translate into real world opinion. I have been seeing some people who, you know, there's like people who are like having strong anti-Israel uh, posts and, you know, and some of it, you know, gets a lot of traction, you know, like 20,000 likes. And some of these people are saying like, oh, we're the future. We represent the real masses and stuff. And I, they definitely are reaching a certain amount of people. But I think another thing is a lot of things online aren't real. <laughs> And it's hard to gauge public support from what's going on online and what's big online. Like, it's always funny when, like, people did polls on the presidential race. Like, the primary, before, like, DeSantis started sinking, all these people would, like, say, oh, look, DeSantis is the number one candidate on Twitter. But obviously, in real life, he was not the number one candidate. And, you know, and you can also see that with some of the uh, engagement on Twitter. It's like a lot of these people are maybe not Americans. A lot of them might be Arabs in the Middle East. So it's hard to say. Like I've, uh, There's like one account. I, th- I think it's Lucas Gage or something. And I wonder, it's like, wow, I, you know, he's getting a lot of engagement. I'm like, I wonder who's tweeting this stuff. And it's like all Muhammad and Abdullah and stuff in the replies. And it's not everyone. But I think a lot of that support is coming from uh, Muslims. And it's hard to understand how many of those people are actually in America. And for, you know, for the one thing is, is that conservatism and Republicans are still dependent on these boomers. And the boomers are still overwhelmingly in favor of Israel. I saw a poll <clears throat> that was really interesting on this matter of a, a generational gap. And it's showing like support for full support for Israeli military actions against Palestine following these attacks. And it was 81% of 65 and older who are 100% behind it. But then there's a massive drop or a significant drop from the 50 to 64 crowd. It's about 56%. And then the, I think it's the 35 to 49 demographic, it's 44%. And then among the 18 to 34 demographic, it was 27%. And this was a poll I saw on CNN. And that's incredible figures. That is also figures you would have not seen. I always say this. This is like, I, it's almost a cliche. It's like, you wouldn't have seen this 10 or 20 years ago. But this is 100% true. You would have not seen this 10 or 20 years ago. And it is a, like a younger demographic that is not as into Israel. And why is that? Uh, some of it is, is you know, they're, you know, maybe they're not, uh, they're not tuned into cable news and talk radio, which is like full on propaganda. They're turning to other news sources if they're listening to news. A lot of it is, some of it is a lot of the minority uh, population. I don't want to say like all white support Israel, but, uh, you know, it's more that minorities just don't give a shit about Israel at all, especially, you know, Arabs and Hispanics and the and the new demographics coming in. And, but it, it's even the same, but even the figures are 
different among wider generations. Gen Xers are still pretty white and pretty conservative too. And that would be, uh, you know, it doesn't look like it's a bare majority. It's not neatly divided into generations because a lot of the 35 to 40, 49 demographic includes uh, millennials. and But most of the 50 to 64 would be Gen Xers. And so I would say it's only a bare majority at most for Gen Xers. And it's really just the vast majority of boomers are that. And, you know, that's an interesting note. So it's hard to gauge what this means. In some ways, you could, the bleak way of looking at this is that, or one way of looking at this is like the younger generations are more left-wing. And by being more left-wing, they're more inclined to being anti-Israel. But I don't know if that's the case. I think it is like a, a, a trend even on conservatives, or at least the consumers of conservative content, that they're less inclined to be pro-Israel than their elders. And I think that's what you're seeing a lot now. But one unfortunate aspect is that the entire Republican Party, as a, with maybe the exceptions of Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, are fully gung-ho about Israel. I mean, even if you go to Gates, Gosar, you name the person, they're all about Israel. Which, I mean, you can see the kind of ridiculousness of how pro-Israel is, is that there was a congressman from Florida, Brian Mast, who is not Jewish, he's an evangelical Christian, and somehow he served in the IDF, and he got an IDF uniform, and he decided to wear it around the Capitol to show off his support for Israel. And uh, there's something very weird about a congressman serving a foreign nation. <laughs> <laughs> and he doesn't even have an ethic tie to it or anything like that. He just really loves Israel, which does show like the fervent evangelical support for Israel among that demographic. But it's uh, it's very bizarre. It also just shows what where Republicans are on that issue is that a lot of the stuff we're seeing online and conservative commentary is not being reflected in the party. Now, that could change you know, in a few years, or maybe there will be a few people emerging that can say that. I don't see among the current crop outside of Massey and Rand Paul. There could be another surprise. Um, maybe Eli Crane. I don't know uh, who could say something like that. But it's unclear who would say, who'd go all in on like reflecting some of the conservative skepticism over Israel uh, and, you know, going to war for them. I, I don't know where you would see that among the Republican Party among elected lawmakers. It's a very different scenario. We'll talk more about the Republican Party later on in the podcast because we're going to go over the speaker situation uh, before we get to some of the cognitive questions. Actually, I do have a relevant cognitive question I want to answer now. And I don't want to name this person because I think he's going to get a lot of hate for just asking this question. No, it's not New England refugee or any of the other common ones, but it is someone who asked questions before, but I will keep him anonymous but I, he uh, asked this question before, and I thought it would be interesting to ask. And he says, he asked, the, I know there's going to be some uh, people going ballistic over this question, but he said, or he asked rather, <coughs> regarding Israel, Scott, what do you think of the dissident right maybe just supporting strictly rhetorically? And what he means by that is just saying, oh, look at these uh, savages butchering. Uh, women and children in the first world country, just like us. This is why we need a Muslim ban. This is why we need a border wall uh, attacking BLM. BLM is America's boss. 
uh, tying it to decolonization. And he's saying that we would not get involved militarily. It would just be these rhetorical send-offs to Israel. For commentators, I would say, or dissonant right, no. I would say no for, for, for a couple of reasons. One, we don't actually gain enough by that. First off, it's that is not good enough for people like Ben Shapiro. They want like full on like we'll take we'll do whatever Israel asks. We're with Israel 100%. You know, if Israel nukes them, we're for nuking Gaza. If Israel wants us to take in a million Gazans, we're for that. They uh, you know, there's like very high hoops to jump to satisfy their demands and they just you know we're never going to be able to satisfy that even with a rhetorical position and you don't gain enough and also you commit yourself to a lot of things um to satisfy them that otherwise i don't think we want to commit ourselves to like embrace like supporting a regional war or taking in all these gazans that they get out that they cleanse out of palestine i don't think we we want to be a part of that and the second is, uh, uh, so these are, I'm just taking this from a pragmatic standpoint of why it'd be no for the dissident right. And this is the dissident right in general on why that. And the second reason is our audience is uh, not ready to go <laughs> for this. Our audience is extremely anti-Israel. And so you could never convince our side to even do that. Even if there was a practical, pragmatic reason, you could never convince our side of this. It's like the, you know, our side... It, It'd be one of the core things of our side is being hostility towards or for a lot of this and right people is, you know, anti-Israel sentiment. And you could never convince them to move the other direction, even if you even if you wanted to. It's like, hey, guys, let's have a pragmatic like, let's say, hey, guys, let's just say we're pro-Israel, but we're not for, you know, funding all their wars and stuff or getting involved militarily. You wouldn't convince our side to do that anyway. They would. uh uh, they would have a full-on revolt <laughs> if, if you tried to convince them of that. So I think, you know, the rhetorical support, first off, we gain nothing from it. We don't benefit from it. And you're just going to piss off our own audience. Uh, so those are the pragmatic reasons for that. Uh, if it came to Republicans, because where Republicans are is completely different from dissident right. You know, right now, Republicans are... Like, let's have Armageddon for Israel. Like, let's nuke Iran. And you're seeing that as the mainstream positions. So just being rhetorically pro-Israel while opposing, you know, full-on military intervention and using it to push our interests or our message with this on immigration restriction and being anti-BLM, that's about as much as we can expect from normal from ordinary republican politicians maybe one day you could see full-on like criticism of israel and uh, a, a completely different position but we're not there yet so for right now if you had a politician that was yeah i'm pro-israel but refused to vote for funding for them or, or more funding for them and was fully opposed to the war and was primarily focused on keeping out palestinian immigrants from this country then i think that would be uh that would be fine. That would be about as much as we can hope for. But when it comes to dis and right, completely different standards we have versus ordinary Republicans. And maybe Trump will have this position. I hope that Trump will uh, take this opportunity to instead of, uh, you know, to talk more about the Muslim ban, which he is doing. He's bringing back the Muslim ban. 
Uh, for some reason, DeSantis is attacking him for not talking about a Muslim ban, but literally his big speech last week and Trump was talking about how we need a, a Muslim ban and to keep these people out from terrorist countries. While Team DeSantis, I guess, didn't read any of the newspapers that have covered this and are attacking him and claiming that only DeSantis is bringing this up when DeSantis is actually following Trump's line on this. So both Trump and DeSantis are are saying we're going to focus on this, but uh, DeSantis is using some uh, really cringe rhetoric about this. He's like, he's saying, uh, you know, the reason why we don't want Palestinians in this country is because they're anti-Semitic. They don't support Israel. We don't want that. We don't want those people in our country in Florida. We ban anti-Semitism because they're not they're a part of the woke mind virus. And so uh, that's, uh, that's DeSantis's line. That is the one thing. Um, there's a little bit of debate on the right over whether <clears throat> we should be happy that now they're talking about deporting uh, Muslim immigrants over Hamas support, which um, I, I don't really like that. I don't like the cancel culture or I guess the cancel culture mechanisms with it. Well, there's two things here. I'm going to go with the Immigration Enforcement Act aspect and then we'll go to the cancel culture aspect, which is mostly the immigration enforcement thing is mainly going on in Europe. It's like the UK and I think France are talking about deporting people who are publicly supporting Hamas. Now, if this is one way to get rid of Muslim immigrants. I, I guess it's good, even though I am disturbed, but I am worried about the reasons because they could very well say, you know, that does show like the state power could go against anyone that they deem offensive. It's like we're going to arrest anyone who uh, who has a problem with uh, with Muslim immigrants, too. They could easily do that as, as well if the media demands it. And so I, I am uncomfortable with the reasoning. But if it leads to fewer Muslim immigrants there, you know, uh, I would say that's otherwise correct. But you do have to be really worried about the reasoning of that because it could very well be used against our people as well. So you have to be uh, careful about that. But, you know, I'm not going to cry over fewer of these people being there. Now there's the cancel culture aspect that's primarily in, in, in America because all these university groups are signing pledges saying they stand with uh Palestine, and obviously that pissed off a lot of rich uh, <laughs> Jewish donors to these universities, and they're threatening to defund universities, and they're wanting to fund doxing operations against these uh, leftists. Now, granted, these leftists are absolutely terrible, and so I am once again not going to be cry over these like people who are otherwise extremely anti-white, extremely woke, not getting a corporate law job. Uh, in some ways, it's good, but also it is disturbing in that this could easily be used against people like us. And it's not quite replacing these people with right-wing people. They're replacing them with slightly less worse people, like smarter libtards. So maybe it might even be a worse situation. But it is good that like some of these leftists won't be getting jobs, but it's not a huge victory. And I don't really like conservatives going full bore, cancel culture, docs mode. I was on the same page when they are going after these idiots who dress up in masks and and march around for no apparent reason i'm saying like you know conservatives like we've got a dox to ruin these people i'm like don't you don't want to be, turn into antifa and here even though these people are obviously bad otherwise outside even their palestine positions their palestine positions <clears throat> you know are the least of probably the least offensive aspect about these people 
I would actually probably say they are the least offensive aspect because everything else is fundamentally opposed to a traditional white America. And you don't want these people in positions of power. So it is, you know, there is a silver, there is a, a good aspect to it. But at the same time, the motivation of it in the full on doxy mode is incredible. And it's also ridiculous that, you know, how these uh, rich donors have seen all the things that universities have done in the past few years. And the one thing that they draw a line on is like random student groups criticizing Israel. It's like you didn't, you slept when they were, you know, the universities were going full on anti-white mode and full on like anti-America. Now you get, now this is the line that's crossed and it's like John Huntsman. It's like, you're not even Jewish. Like, why are you so upset about this? It, it's actually, it is really frustrating and uh, ridiculous that this is the one thing that they get upset over. Now that brings us to the topic of how the left is reacting to this. There has been some discussions over whether, what is the left's view of Israel. And it has changed from, as I said, just a few years ago. I want to make this, I want to make this point very clear. As if this attack had happened 10 years ago, and 15, 20 years ago, there have been universal, I mean, even more so, universal support for Israel. Everyone would have been like, it's time to nuke Gaza off the map. There would have not been these large-scale protests in favor of Palestine in America, especially in college campuses. You have to, is like, the Muslim population has doubled since 9-11, which is uh, what is the opposite should have happened but it has doubled and that's why there's so many of these uh, arabs and others and other browns who are protesting in favor of palestine on college campuses and that's like you know this is the immigration policy neocon supported and now they see what's happening and they're like oh this was uh i wonder how this happened must be uh must be uh safe space <laughs> and that's not it at all uh but they're you know, it's a completely different mentality of what would have happened. And America would have, you know, they're already a blank check, but there is, you know, some rumblings that this may not be all set for Israel. And you can see this on the left is that the left grassroots is not thrilled with Israel. It's not, it's not that, you know, wanting to have this full on, on, full on support for Israel. Now, the Democratic leadership is still firmly like, you know, whatever Israel wants, we're for. But that's not really shared by the Democratic grassroots, largely because it's non-white and it just doesn't really give a shit about Israel. It's either just doesn't give a shit about Israel or it sympathizes with the Palestinians over Israelis. And but that's not yet reflected by leadership. But this could change in some degrees. Now, you are seeing funny uh, moments like uh, MSNBC has banned all their or temporarily uh, kicked off the air all their Muslim anchors because they're too pro-Palestinian and they just want a pro-Israeli line. But I think as the number of bombings happen in Gaza and they see all these dead kids and stuff, it's what Israel's doing too. It's like the bizarre um, propaganda war we're seeing so on social media where both sides are like, look at our dead kids, look at our dead kids. And then you have to wonder whether this is an old video clip, whether this is uh, manipulated media. You're like, what? I don't know what to believe here. But they're having a competition between dead kids of what it is. And it's very weird for like a state to just like share pictures of dead kids on, on its thing. But that's what they're, uh, that's what both sides are doing. 
And so, but that's still the line. It's like decapitated babies and that's it. And even if you see the public discourse around this is that sports games are having moments of silence for Israel. You know, the Thursday night football game had a moment of silence for uh, Israel. And there was like a fan in the the crowd who said, fuck Hamas at the end of the moment of silence. And the crowd, you know, cheered with that. And even there was a moment of silence at Sunday night football. And there's been a moment of silence at all these MLB playoff games. And it's like showing that, you know, for people who aren't even politically engaged, that they're supposed to be upset by this. And you would think if there was a major backlash against Israel among the general population, you would hear people booing at the games and other things. But you're not. You're seeing people say, fuck Hamas at the end of the moment of silence. Um, so it's a very different um you know, the general population by uh, metrics that you can gauge their opinion on this, they are sympathizing with Israel. But it won't, I don't know if it will always be the case because if Israel goes in and has this full on invasion where they're, you know, wiping out tons of civilians and the news media is going to cover it, I do think a lot of the sympathy, at least on the left, is going to change. And I think it's become a more difficult situation for Biden. And also, Europe is just not going to sign on for this stuff. And Biden is, I, you know, does not want to have that scenario. I think one thing is I'm worried about the uh, the conflict escalating beyond its borders. I think that that risk is maybe not as high as last week. I think Israel knows it doesn't want to have that type of conflict, and also Hezbollah and Iran don't want to have that type of conflict. So everyone's like kind of agreeing that it should be kept to Gaza, but I think Israel's still trying to figure out what their invasion of Gaza is going to look like. They know that they're going to that a, they would get bogged down in urban guerrilla warfare, which is not what they want to be faced with, and it's going to lead to high casualties among them and it, with you know diminishing results. Um, it seems like they still haven't committed to what they're actually going to do in this. And they're also worried about the international community's response of what might happen. Because they know that if like all these pictures of dead kids come out of Gaza, that Europe will, t- will not be a fan of this. And this could potentially upset Biden and change his tone to Israel and the war. So they're really testing the waters here uh, with this. But they have to do something because they have these hostages and there's a demand for blood from their own population. So they're going to have to do something big. But what it is, they haven't figured out yet. I think the bigger risk now, rather than a regional war, and it's something just as bad, is that we're going to have to figure out what to do with over a million Palestinians. And Arab, nobody wants them. Literally nobody wants them. Arab countries don't want them because they know that they would be a source of social turmoil and unrest and, and terrorism. Europe doesn't want them because they already have all their other immigration problems and having another million people come in who are likely to be extremists and be terrorists they don't want to have. And in America, they don't want them here because they're obviously going to see them as all terrorists and, and as evil people as all the neo, as all the media has been claiming about it, Palestinians, especially conservative media. And then it's like, why don't we welcome them here? So I don't know where they would go. And it would be funny if Israel's like, Israel obviously wants the West to take them, but the West is like, you're literally saying these people are terrorists. <laughs> Why do we want to take them? And even like here in America, I think that some of these, you know, some of these Israeli firsters would say like, we want to take them, but then we'd be like, uh, wouldn't they just come here and try to blow you up in this country? <laughs> and then be like, uh, yeah, that's a good point. I'd probably, I don't know. They would may change that, but 
that's really the the thing this week that I feel is the highest risk is that what Israel would want to do is that it'll take and occupy certain parts of Gaza that'll clear out that population and that population will go elsewhere. Where they will go, I don't know. But the main important thing, the two main important things that I think is like everyone should have in this in this opinion is like opposition to American intervention in the war and opposition to taking in any migrants or refugees from the war. Those are the two clear positions that we need to have and emphasize that we want to uh, not happen or we don't want we don't want a war or we don't want America to get in war and we don't want these refugees and migrants. And those are the two key positions. And so I'm a little bit worried that we may take in these Palestinians. And uh, I don't think they're going to all gonna be a million Richard Hanais. <laughs> Maybe that would be really funny if they are. Right? Like gender studies departments would be on notice. Uh, the Al Hanani Brigade would be uh, would turn into real life, but I don't think that that's um, I don't think they would be based at all. I'm always like saying like Muslim immigrants are not based and are not likely to become uh, fervent conservative supporters, even if they do protest these woke wokeness in their schools. Ultimately, they'll still vote for Democrats and they view whites as a bad thing and want white um, sovereignty diminished in this country. So in conclusion, it's a very messy situation, but it is like something that's like how insane everyone has gone. I don't think the level of rhetoric we're just seeing on social media is like people would have been more uh, aware to not have this crazy rhetoric before. But now it's just like going full mask off. And it's just like funny things that are like like Breitbart turning their logo into having a Star of David in it and blue and it's just like so many ridiculous things that are happening. And a lot of people are noticing the level of insanity. But it's like insanity on or, or, or chaos, I would say. Chaos on all sides. Because now they're, you know, Ben Shapiro's getting community noted. They're saying like this uh, dead baby picture is AI generated. And that depends on which format you use. Some came back that was authentic. But we don't know what we're, we're looking at here. And you always have to have skepticism with whatever's coming out from this conflict. Um, both sides actually, but uh, you need level skepticism here. I don't want to fall for any of this propaganda. Uh, and you're just seeing that type of stuff. You're seeing a ton of stuff that go viral that would have never gone viral a few years ago. I mean, that's a big difference between 10 years ago is that social media was supposed to be a tool of American intelligence agency and American soft power is that, you know, it helped stir up the Arab Spring and, all, and you know, unrest against Assad and all these leaders that... America didn't like. And now it's being turned uh, against the globalist American empire. It's like uh, social media is just like rife with uh, like information, both, you know, real information and misinformation that uh, the, <laughs> the powers that be don't want out there, don't want out in the public eye. And they have zero ability to contain it. And it is especially... Uh, true or, or a bigger part of the social media world thanks to Elon Twitter. So it is good. You get a lot of information out there that you wouldn't otherwise have, but there's also a ton of just like fake videos, AI generated content and stuff, and no one can tell the difference between what's real and what's not. And so it's a very, um, it's very uh, chaotic situation that you see here. And I could definitely see that the powers of be are not happy with what's going on. I think that's also triggering a lot of the responses among 
um, you know, these Zionists in, in America that they're just going nuts because they're seeing all this other information out there. And that's driving up their neuroticism. And they're seeing these protests on universities and they're melting down over it. And, uh, you know, it's a it's a very weird situation. And we don't have any leadership at top. Like, you know, we have a senile president. We don't have a House speaker. Our House, our Senate minority leaders are literally walking corpse and Mitch McConnell. You know, there's no real, there's no leadership in this country. You know, it's Donald Trump, but, you know, he's a polarizing figure and he's and he's only focused on his legal issues. So we don't really have a leader at this moment. And, you know, the world is heading to chaos. And uh, I do think people are a little worried about what's going on, even though they're mainly focused on like football and and sports and video games and gambling. You know, I think the people who are paying attention are a little bit worried at the at the situation we have. But now that leads into. Washington without the House Speaker race. What's going on with the House Speaker race? Republicans have had uh, had struggled to find a House Speaker, and tomorrow it's supposed to they're supposed to have a floor vote tomorrow. And Jim Jordan is the caucus's nominee, um, but it's not assured that he will be the nominee. And last week it was supposed to be Steve Scalise, but Steve Scalise didn't have the votes to for a to win on the floor, so he pulled him, he dropped out, and then it became Jim Jordan, who Jim Jordan had ran against him in the in, in conference against him. Scalise won by a narrow majority, then Scalise dropped out, and then Jordan is in there. Uh, but it's anyone's guess what will happen. Some, what I've talked to people who are knowledgeable on the Hill, they think that most likely scenario is that Jordan somehow wins, but he's going to have to do concessions to moderates. It really is just how much moderates want to punish the conservative wing. As Jordan becoming the House Speaker is being seen as the eight who voted to unseat McCarthy as a victory for them. But it's unclear what will happen. Uh, if it's not Jordan, it, it's anyone's guess who will who can become House Speaker. Um my best bet would be Kevin Hearn, who's head of the Republican Study Committee. You know, conservatives like him. Moderates don't seem to have a problem with him. He's not seen as a slam dunk for the conservatives. But if Jim Jordan can't become House Speaker, I would say that that's my bet. Um, there is a real threat of moderates like nominating someone terrible and getting Democrat support or voting for a Democrat. Um which I don't know who they would do. I don't know if Democrats really want to do this for Republicans. I think they prefer to have the Republicans look chaotic and stupid and incapable of government. And even offering a different House Speaker that is not Hakeem Jeffries is essentially conceding to Republicans and, you know, as a way that they don't want to do it. They think that they can make political capital out of the chaos of Republicans, which is true. And they'd rather have Republicans not have a house speaker rather than have a house speaker you know it's why help your enemies when they're hanging themselves and so that's and that's what's going on in the capital now if jim jordan becomes house speaker i would say that the effort to unseat mccarthy was semi-successful because you do get someone who's who's more dedicated to what we care about he's more open to cutting funds for ukraine and his number one priority uh, well, prior to the Israel stuff was the border. And I think your best bet for getting something on the border and maybe cutting funding for Ukraine 
is Jim Jordan. There's no one else. So he's probably the best option that we have. But him becoming the nominee is, uh, or becoming the speaker is a little bit difficult. So we'll have to see on Tuesday. We'll have to see on tomorrow what happens. But a lot of this is exposing how the Republican Party is turning into the insane clown party in all aspects. It's like Republicans, I mean, just look at the ridiculousness of last week. You have Brian Mast, uh, a non-Jew evangelical Christian, wearing his IDF uniform on Capitol Hill. And it's like, this is an American lawmaker. Why is he wearing a foreign military uniform? You've got Nancy Mace strutting herself out, thawing it up. You know, she went into a conference meeting with the Scarlet A on her tight top, which is designed to show off her tits. And you're just like... What is up with Republican lawmakers? And she's like, they're they're treating me like a whore. And I want to tell you, I am definitely not. I'm like, okay, Nancy Bates. I mean, Nancy Bates is like all of her public appearances are like, guess what? I have sex. And uh, she may be one of the horniest lawmakers on uh, Capitol Hill, which is a big uh, battle, uh, a huge competition for that. Uh, then there was an insane moment with George Santos. For some reason, George Santos was carrying a baby around. Uh, no idea who the baby was. Uh, he is a gay man, so hopefully, uh, I don't think he would have a baby. And people asked him, "Is like, is that your baby?" He's like, "Not yet." And then he had a whole confrontation with uh, protesters over the baby. And uh, there's also these Palestinian protesters running around, and Republicans are just. Uh, not being able to come together and be realistic about what they want from a next House Speaker. Uh, conservatives have finally agreed on Jordan, but it actually did take a lot of effort because there were like conservative lawmakers who are like, we don't think he's very good on J6 and Jack Smith stuff. And it's like, you know, it would be great if the House could do something about that, but the House has incredibly limited political capital and there's no fucking way they can defund like the J6 investigation and Jack Smith. Like, most of the like at least a third of the conference would not support that and they would just vote for whatever the democrats want i think at most you have two-thirds of republicans that would be on board with that maybe might even be less than that it might be even less than half of republicans would be on board for that for defunding that stuff and obviously could never get through the senate couldn't get through to biden so what's even the point the only thing they can get something done with is definitely the border. And now with the new Israel situation, they can probably do something about Ukraine. And I think I think some of the um, Democrats are realizing that they, you know, we don't have an infinite checkbook for both countries, and we're going to have to pick who we want. And they'd rather just wind down Ukraine before it escalates even further. I think that's like the best opportunity for that. So those are like the two things you can that you can maybe hope for a house speaker to do and anything else is just like not likely there's even people like we need to have someone who's gonna completely ban abortion it's like how the hell is that how the hell how how the hell is a house speaker supposed to do that uh with a thin majority so it is really like showing like republicans is like total insane clown party all these people from like mace down others they just care more about fundraising and creating a spectacle then actually, I, I don't want to, this does sound like a liberal, like, talking point, but I think it is, like, coming to hurt, like, dissident, what the dissident right even wants, which we do want Congress focused on, like, not funding these wars and doing something about the border. And the clown show on Capitol Hill is preventing that because all these guys just want to look like they're doing something, get their TV hit, 
you know, look like they're the most conservative lawmaker there is, when in fact they're just, you know, furthering the clownish aspect of the Republican Party and further uh, advancing the idea that the GOP is just turning to an insane clown party, which can't get anything done and is just focused on spectacle and entertainment value, which is what a lot of this latest fight over McCarthy is. And like I said, I'm totally for Gates. People have asked me about Gates. Um, it, I am still 100% behind Gates. Maybe not 100%. I'm mostly behind Gates. I don't think it was the wisest decision on this House Speaker. I mean, if we get Jordan, you know, it's a slightly better situation. Um, but I think it come at the risk of making the entire GOP look like a shit show. So maybe that was... And it also pissed off all these other powerful Republicans. And that may hurt him in the Florida governor race, which he's wanting to run for in 2026. And advancing his career is very important for us because we do have a limited number of people who could possibly be the next Trump. And he's one of the few people who could fill out that role. He's got the charisma and he's got the solid policy takes for the most part. And he, you know, so I want him to succeed. And that's really what some of the frustration I had over the House Speaker races. I think that that you know, he did get a lot of public support for it, a lot of attention, but it may come at the risk of hurting him getting institutional support for future races. So, but we're still, I'm still um, team Gates for the most part. Um, I hope he succeeds um, and hopefully it all turns out well, but I am the GOP, the state of GOP is just is just clownish to the ordinary voter you know if they're looking at the party they're like these guys are idiots they can't even govern they can't even legislate and it's not about coming to compromises with democrats it's about wringing concessions out of them to further advance our cause which we do have as i keep saying we have two things that they could do and they're not being able to do that because of the the spectacle that too many people want to create and for a lot of our audience, they think that the spectacle is actually doing something when it's not doing something. And, and that's why we now have Nancy Mace uh, strutting around, thawing it up on Capitol. And I, nobody's really falling for it, but it's like this is the end point of the spectacle. You just have, and then you have Lauren Boebert's like antics and everyone's just like, you know, it's like if you present the GOP to like normal middle class white voters, this is why they don't want to vote for Republicans because they think that this is like the insane clown party. And unfortunately, Republicans on Capitol Hill are furthering that image. So in conclusion, hopefully Jordan wins. Hopefully they do not try to um, sell out and join the Democrats and vote have some moderate Republican that Democrats will support. I don't think Democrats will support that. Moderates really would just have to be choose between whoever Republicans put up, or Hakeem Jeffries. The Democrats don't really have like a moderate person to support, and they don't want to give any concessions to Democrats. They feel like they're in a powerful position here. And so they're they're limited in what they can offer. So it'd be Hakeem Jeffries, which would not be a victory. I think that's not a likely scenario. Um, if Jordan wins, that's, that's good. Um, Hearn might be also good, uh, but I think it's... It's all coming at the, as I keep repeating myself, it's all coming at the cost of making the GOP look like a shit show and off-putting to people who are paying attention. Will it matter in the 2024 elections? Maybe if they keep having these speaker races and everyone, you know, they can't get anything done. But, you know, if they get a new speaker and 
it's relatively calm for throughout. You know, people aren't going to remember this. So I have two more topics to discuss um, with this uh, going forward of of things to talk about. Is that elections in Europe are... I actually didn't really get to talk about the elections, but elections actually all over the world. We had some white pills and some not-so-white pills. Uh, Australia voted against their voice referendum, which was going to give this aboriginal body and their parliament that would have veto power over legislation and and all this type of crazy stuff. It was imagine if we just had like a, a black delegate, like a permanent black <laughs> parliamentary vote voice. And if Congress passed something and they're just like, ah, oh, that's racist. And then they couldn't pass it. You know, there there's discussions over what type of power that this uh, Aboriginal body would have in Parliament and this voice, but it did open up the policy, the chance that they could veto stuff. And 60% of Australians, despite all the propaganda and the state being behind it and all the media being behind it, they voted against it. So that's very good. The Aussies woke up and voted against the Aboriginal stuff. And Australia and New Zealand are going through a a type of racial reckoning reckoning and national guilt complex that's even more extreme than America because they're, you know, Australia is thinking about getting rid of their July 4th or their um, Australia Day where it's, which it celebrates the white settlers coming to Australia. And there's a bunch of cities that no longer celebrate that. That's a little bit bigger deal than like Columbus Day because Columbus Day, you know, it's like they're being told that they can't celebrate July 4th anymore. And there's like cities not doing that. There's cities like wanting to rename themselves. They're renaming all this stuff after Aboriginal stuff. They're all having to make these big apologies. But I think that this vote against the voice referendum is like a turning point and it's moving back. Like oh, the fact that it was like it was like a decisive vote against it is a massive white pill. So that's good in Australia. In New Zealand, which is very libtarded too, and having a lot of similar stuff to Australia, right-wing parties won. They defeated uh, you know, the party of, of Jacinda Ardern, who is no longer prime minister, but like her successor took over. And so they, they did well. So that's, that's all good. And also from the week before, AFD continue and Germany continues to improve. And they're doing very well among young people too, which is a big difference from America and England, which I'll we'll get to in a moment. But the uh, not-so-white pill is what happened in Poland, which I, I don't really like the base Poland meme and stuff, but it's not good for like right-wing parties that oppose immigration to and oppose a lot of the wokeness and like uh, American style liberalism coming into their country to lose, but it lost its majority and the opposition gained the majority in, in the, in the elections, which isn't very good. And even though I think the law and justice party, the center right party has a lot of problems, you know, they've banned a lot of nationalists there. Um, you know, they're responsible for Jared Taylor not being allowed in Europe, uh, because he went to like nationalist conferences and then Poland had a was upset about it and the law and justice party is responsible for him being banned from Europe. So that's uh, nothing to celebrate for, <laughs> for them. Uh, so, you know, in some ways there's, um, I, I do like that it will now no longer suffer under base Poland memes, but it's still not good that they voted for this. And it's also bad because a lot of talk have, has been about continental Europe, young people voting more right wing than, there than Americans. But in Poland, 
the two parties, the Confederacy, or it's, I forget the American, uh, it's Confederacy or Confederation, which is the more right-wing nationalist party than Law and Justice. It got more young people to vote for it than Law and Justice. But at the end, they only got, you know, those two right-wing parties combined, they only got like 34% of the young vote, like the 18 to 29 vote. And like a little bit higher, maybe a little bit higher. I'm trying to remember the polls, but it was under 40%. And the left-wing parties got, you know, over 60%. And so that's in line with what's happening in England and America. And so a lot of people were wondering, like, why is Germany uh, or why are there these differences in, in youth voting patterns? And some people see it as like continental Europe is more youth are voting right wing. But there's different scenarios with this because the Poland election wasn't over immigration. So that's like one good thing to take in is that the opposition actually attacked the Law and Justice Party for selling out on immigration because the Law and Justice Party has been welcoming in all these guest workers and had plans to expand it. And Donald Tusk, who is complete libtard, total Eurocrat, once like full on European unity, turned into a, a major immigration restrictionist and was attacking the Law and Justice Party as the Open Borders Party and, and selling out on immigration and talking and even getting into some racial <laughs> rhetoric as like they're letting in uh, non-white foreigners, not in those words, but paraphrasing it. And that was upsetting a lot of his liberal allies, but he had to do what he had to do. It's the same in what they do in Hungary is that a lot of these opposition parties in Hungary will sometimes say Orban is selling out on immigration. They even and some of the opposition and also the opposition parties do that in Russia if they're smart. And it worked in Poland. So both parties were all trying to say that they're the true anti-immigration. So that's one good thing is that you should not see this as a referendum on the identity issues. It was more, I think, a big reason for the young people is it's once again, the Law Justice Party is pushing, unlike a lot of other European conservative parties, a more social conservative agenda. And it appeared by voting patterns, especially among young women, they overwhelmingly went for the left wing parties. They didn't like this is that Poland has done more restrictions on abortion and the opposition plan to liberalize abortion laws again. And we unfortunately, young people, that's what young people vote for. And so I think if you're looking at in Poland, there's other issues, too. But I think that that's something that can be applied through a global lens and apply to America and the UK, um, or at least America, with why young people vote more left-wing versus Germans, French, and Italians, and others. And I think even in Sweden, young people are more likely to vote for Swedish Democrats. Don't quote me on that, but I know in France and Germany, it's more likely for the young people to vote that way. So, and those are like the core countries of Western Europe. Uh, so it, it's wondering is like, why do the youth vote differently than there than in America? And so going over the reasons is one, the absence of these social issues that are likely to dissuade young people from voting right wing, like abortion, gay stuff, uh, that type of stuff. Those are bigger issues. I know a lot of the audience who are young people that they want the right wing parties to say this, but... The rest of their generational cohort, and I know that you guys who talking to people your age would realize that they're more socially liberal on these issues. And those are a bigger issue in America for young people. And they're much more at the 
voted on the ballot box than they are in Germany and France. These are just like non-issues for people. I mean, there's some de- debate over what, how much state funding there should be for abortion, but it's not to the extent of where people think that, you know, if one party wins, they're going to completely ban abortion. And that get does get a lot of young women out to vote. And those young women are able to convince some of these young men to vote also for Democrats based on these social issues. So the social issues... Uh, Republicans and others don't win on. The UK is also a bigger, is also a different thing because they also don't really have these social issues. Like they're not debating abortion in the UK, but they're still losing the youth vote. Uh, UK is just like its own scenario. And also the UK, the youth are browner, are less non-white than the older generation so that's one reason but it's a lot of these young white kids who are also very left-wing in the uk so i'm not even quite sure why the uk because a lot of the explanations i'm going to say don't make sense but that's another difference between america and europe is continental europe or at least germany france is that the younger generation is far less white here than it is in germany france and young white men who still pretty conservatives, not that different from the older generations, but young white women and likely due to the social issues and, and media propaganda. But we'll just, most of the media propaganda is centered around those social issues and the fact that there's all these non-whites there, it makes them more inclined to vote left wing. And yeah, there, there's like less, it's, um, I don't think a lot of these non-whites are voting, or at least the younger cohort are voting as high as they do in America. But I have to look at the voting patterns on that. And it's hard to see with French uh, racial patterns because they don't like to collect data on this. Uh, but that is something to consider, I think. And also a third issue is that the young people in these core countries of Western Europe are more confronted by the identity issues a lot more than young people here. You know, one of the things about America is that you can just run away from these problems. You can go to the suburbs or you can focus on stuff. You know, you don't really have to face this. Like in Europe, a lot of these kids have witnessed dramatic changes to their cities in just like a short span of a year. And they feel that they go, that they see these like once beautiful parts of their city and they're total slums. Americans from Gen Xers down have accepted that our cities are, are hell holes. I mean, even boomers have accepted that. So... Most Americans alive have just accepted that our cities are not livable places for white people and that they left. And so it's not an issue we confront. And also the immigrants are much more in your face and much and stand out a lot more in Europe than they do in America. Because in America, like, you know, we live in our little own little islands. You know, if you go to a certain area, you might see more Hispanics. But, you know, it's like you just kind of shrug your shoulders. Well, if you go out in the public area, and even if you're in a small town, you would have never seen minorities there five years ago, and now you do, and they're completely different from you. You know, there's not this shallow American mass culture that, um, you know, they do have that in Europe, but there's also something else that's tied to ethnocultural, the specific ethnocultural background of the countries of German, French, you know, there's something that means there and that you can, these people definitely stand out like sore thumbs. You'll see that. I mean, there's some, you know, degree of that in America where you go to a certain area and you see people in burkas and stuff, but that's not like really common. What you mostly see is Hispanics. And uh, I guess like some people just don't get as upset about them as they do 
in Europe. And the young people really do get upset as that they feel that these people are coming in and taking all their uh, government subsidies and they're ruining their towns and they're making it, you know, it's changing the way that they can go out and stuff. It's still far safer in Europe than it is in America, but Americans have just accepted that our cities are are no-go zones for white Americans. And we've accepted that for, you know, over 50 years. So I think that's another difference is that these issues come to the fore. Um, but UK, I, I, don't under, I don't know. I don't have a full explanation of that because, once again, the Tories are very socially liberal. Um, you know, it's they're not as, you know, their demographics aren't nearly as bad as, as America's. You know, they're still over 80% white in, in the UK. And, you know, it's not, it's still well over 60% among young people, but they're still very vote left wing. So I don't really know. I think it could just be that young people in the UK care more about these social services and like the welfare and stuff. And it's not like the Tories want to cut it, but there's this perception they want to cut it. So I don't know the full answer for that. But I think for America, those three issues explain is like the greater attention to social issues, which is likely to drive young people to their the worst demographics here. And three is that young people, it, these identity issues are more in the face of young people and they're more likely to gravitate to those parties that address those identity issues than here in America, where a lot of young people either accept the identity problems or they're just not confronted with them face to face as they are in Europe because a lot of these young Europeans still live in the cities and live in areas that, you know, would be unthinkable to live in in America because they're still relative. Even their most dangerous areas are still much nicer than our dangerous areas. Um, and so and that's not something that they haven't come to accept while well, we've come to accept that in America. Now it's the last time before the common league questions is uh, once again, for some reason, the um, the desire to proletarianize the entire conservative uh, population of America is once again coming to the fore. There's a story about this Asian kid, which uh, he had like a near perfect SAT score, perfect grades, and he couldn't get into an elite college, which illustrates the outrageousness of the racial preferences in, in our schools. Because, you know, we'll always hear this story about one black kid who gets like accepted into every Ivy League. And then it's like, oh, he must be so smart. It's like, no, he just had like he's like one of the few that has good enough grades and they're all desperate to fulfill that racial quota that they have. So they all offer this person a full ride scholarship. Well, if you are actually genuinely smart, if you actually do have the merit to get in, you're not being allowed in. And so regardless of whether he's Asian or not, this would be the same story with whether he's white. And I, I know I cherry picked one quote out of this, but there are other people who are commenting on this. And anytime you bring up college on our side, they immediately go to like, why are you thinking about going to college? Go to trade school. And there was some woman who's like, you know, this guy has a perfect SAT score. And it's like, he should go into the trades. He should become a plumber. And this is like a trend. There was a funny time when Peachy Keenan was talking about one of her kids who had like a very high SAT score, great grades. And she was like lamenting as like, well, everyone thinks he should be in trades. And it's like, yeah, he should be in trades. It's like, he's a, he should be a plumber. And all the replies and quote tweets were about how like her kid should absolutely just go into the trades and not go into university. And most of the people making this recommendation didn't go into the trades themselves. A lot of them are college educated. They're just boomers and Gen Xers. Somebody said it's like the new 
like for boomers, it was just get a college degree and everything will be set or have a firm handshake. For Gen Xers, it's everything problem solved is by going to trade school. And it gets into this. Now, if you have like a 1100 SAT or 10, uh, 1000 SAT and they're like, well, maybe you might be better doing a trade school. I mean, that's not as unrealistic, but for like your kind of your real kind of elite, you want them to go to university. And we have so few conservatives going into this path that it's like, you know, you're not I've always made these points, but you're not gaining any power or influence in society by becoming a plumber. Yes, you can, depending on how you operate in your circumstances, you can have a nice life. But for people who are more cerebral, more intellectual, you know, it's not something that they want to do. Maybe they can find contentment. There's like a few people like that, but most people wouldn't. And they're not going to be operating with people who are like them. You know, it's there. People are born differently. And in a functioning society, you have different people, you know, different drugs for different folks. And you don't want your brainiacs to necessarily be HVAC repairmen. And you don't really want your <laughs> ditch diggers to be, you know, your Supreme your Supreme Court justices. That's just how it is. And so there's different levels for it. So everyone can find their own function in society. And that's how the right should operate. Because that's, you know, we believe that people are fundamentally different. We're not egalitarians. But for some reason, uh, everyone, there's this like real type of quasi-Marxism in this. And it's, Primarily promoted by people who don't know genuine working class people or they are working class people themselves and they're bitter about their circumstances. And so they demand that everyone become, uh, you know, a ditch digger to be on their level. And some people make good money, but there's a lot of bitterness on this. It's either out of touch boomers and Gen Xers making this recommendation or it's a few very bitter blue collar people who want to feel superior to everyone else. And they feel that there's going to be a new aristocracy centered around people who clean toilets for a living. Uh, okay, I don't want to be too kind of, kind of yeah, critical, but there's sometimes it's like it's like the real path to power. And I've seen like tons of tweets like get this like the real path to power is becoming an HVAC repairman. It's like you're not the one making decisions in society. You're not the one influencing how society works. And a huge problem with conservatives is that we don't have this competent cognitive elite. It's overwhelmingly liberal. And if the liberals are in total power and we're just the ones fixing their toilets, that's how the situation is. I mean, that's like we just obtained demi status. And that's not really what we want. I mean, there's been tons of societies where you know, there's a labor class and then there's a master class. And conservatives want to aspire to be the slave class. <laughs> they want to be the serfs. They want to be totally removed from any centers of power from the cities. They don't want to have any position where they could influence legal decisions, political decisions, military decisions. They just want to fix the elite's toilets. And yes, you can make a good life for it. And not everyone is going to be cut out for it. But we do need the people who, the young people who are reading our stuff who are very young, who are wondering what they should do. And generally these people have an aptitude to go to college and to become lawyers and accountants and military officers and other great things. And you don't want to encourage them to be something that would probably not be the best fit for them. And we are in desperate need of more people with the merit and qualifications to help run a state that we like. I mean, this is even a huge problem with it in the Trump administration. It's like people always complain. It's like, well, you know, you should have made better hires. And then 
they really didn't have better hires. And a lot of times they hired like total clowns for some of this stuff. Um, you know, I was heard hearing a story is that, you know, I've had, I've heard just like stories of who they were looking for to find like an FBI director or for these important roles. And they were just like going down these like lists of people that could never, uh, definitely didn't have the ability to do this type of stuff. And it's the same even when it comes to legal cases that a lot of times when we see guys on our side sued is that they don't have competent lawyers to come and defend them. I mean, it's like a huge problem with J6. And it's like, you know, for some of these people, it's like these J6ers should just turn to their plumber buddy to defend them. And sometimes it is turning out to be that way and it's not going well for them. But imagine if we had like a whole cadre of competent lawyers coming to defend people who are in a situation like J6 and others. We'd be in a much better situation. So, but, you know, I understand like the push for trade schools on uh, the general population because there is a lot of people who are not cut out for college and we have been pushing this forward. But for young people who are involved in politics, who are reading stuff on Twitter, who are listening to podcasts, those people are more inclined to have the aptitude to actually do well in school. They're a lot more smarter and more intellectually curious than their peers and it'd probably be a better fit to get them in into a university and well-trained in one of these positions rather than than anything else but it is also and we need those people we're desperate need for those people but that's all the point it's like it's so funny that you know they'd spent years complaining about affirmative action and then the new conservative position is like let's just all go to trade schools it's like we don't even need to worry about affirmative action <laughs> it's like you know the answer to racial discrimination and higher ed, where it's preventing us from having any type of elite status and elite jobs, is just to go to trade school. And conservatives is just like on this, like you can make 90k a year, and it's like, yeah, but you have to work your ass off, and you have to work weekends, and you don't have a lot of time to yourself, or you have to move to another place. You know, I was, uh, somebody was telling me about a story about a guy who had a blue collar job, and he had to go to a big city. He was making very good money, but he's living in a hotel, and you know, he wasn't living the best life in a personal aspect and then they found out that this guy's wife had been cheating on him for years and that's because he was away and he's making good money but there's these situations that happen um in that that a lot of people don't understand when they're just pulling uh anecdotes out of their ass so yes it's like the new boomerism you know the boomers had all these terrible advice but now it's the new gen xism is like just go to trade school and it's like anti-white discrimination in universities just go to trade school uh the entire off enemy controls all the elite professions is like don't worry we'll fix their toilets and that's how our path to power so that's always what i say and people always criticize me and say like i'm i'm looking down and sneering at the working class and stuff and it's like one it's like one I don't like this new trend to treat working class whites in the same way that liberals have this fawning attitude towards blacks is like they're magical creatures and we imagine them in a way that they're actually not. And we try to have status by identifying with them in the same way the left does with blacks. And I'm not working class whites are not like that. Working class, there's a lot of great aspects about them, but we kind of imagine them to be something that they're not. And a lot of times if we point out any of the problems that are happening with downscale communities from like the drug abuse, you know, the the broken families, you know, they're having a lot of the same uh, family issues that are not nearly as bad, but as some of the black communities. 
And when you point out this stuff, it's like, you know, it's not all a rosy picture. You know, it's not all Mayberry and working class America. You know, these people are like, you're sneering down at us. You're talking down to us. This is bad. You hate us. And it's like, no, we're just pointing out what life is like. And these people just want uncritical adoration from whoever. And that's not what we're really about. And the second thing is like the main thing is that we're criticizing this fantasy of downward mobility that's primarily promoted not by working class people but by middle class conservatives it's like these people are living in suburb the suburbs in a cul-de-sac they have a college degree they work a white collar job and they're telling their kids or they're telling other young people to just be plumbers and it's you know that's not the life you've had it's just a fantasy that you don't know about and you're recommending it to other people and that's primarily what i'm criticizing and if you proletarianize yourself you're not actually gaining power. You're ensuring that you have no power in our society and you allow the enemy to have total free reign of whatever they want to do. And so that's what I'm critical of. You know, everyone has their place. I'm just critical of this obsession and desire for all of us to be downwardly mobile and creating this fantasy image of working class whites from which went to the Richmond, North Richmond stuff and other things and people can't even get their story straight they're either working class whites are either like this starving proletariat this oppressed colonized people or they're all like making six figures and are able to afford a bugatti you know and people will make the same argument uh depending on which they're arguing against so it's just silly it's and it's something that extends beyond twitter because you know you can watch fox news and they'll be recommending uh trade school to people which i guess to some other viewers, like some of those kids probably would be better off in trade school. But when it comes to Twitter, when it comes to online discourse, the young people who are wondering what to do, they have a greater aptitude to do college. And we need to get those people in positions to help the cause and help our society change for the better. And if we had a ton of base lawyers, that'd be a lot better than having even more base plumbers because plumbers are already pretty base. We don't need to make them even more base, but we need more base lawyers. We need more keyed lawyers. And that's just something, and keyed military officers, keyed other things that uh, require a college degree and a, and a certain level of trying to make the best of yourself. And, and upward mobility, that's an important thing. We shouldn't look down on upward mobility. It's not, it, we're having a huge problem of losing middle class whites and some of it is the uh, desire to look like, pro, uh, to be the proletariat, and that is turning them off. We need more of those people and upward mobility is still a good thing. We shouldn't sneer at it. It's not a recipe for turning everyone into a bug man. It's like if you go into these nice yuppie areas and the city, you know, the supposed bug men, they're all working out. They're all physically, a lot of them are physically fit. They're outside playing, are outside, you know, doing activities and stuff. And young people looking good. And then you go to some of the rural areas. You go to your nearest Walmart and you uh, see a, a different side of humanity, <laughs> uh, which is like, you know, once again, not sneering. It's, I'm not trying to sneer, but I think for a lot of people, they imagine that like the people in the yuppie areas are all morbidly obese, never going outside, never working out and totally ugly people. And then you go to the Walmart and rural area and it's all tall, like blonde haired, blue eyed, like giga chads and Stacy's. And that's not really what's happening. So now on to the Cognitively questions. As a reminder, you too can get the power to ask me questions or suggest guests and topics if you sign up for the Cognitively option at highly respected Substack. And that's at, I, that's at highly respected.substack.com. 
com and make sure to sign up for the iq summons while you're there so these i have two questions from k max he uh there's a miscommunication in getting some of his questions before so some of these are a little bit uh one of them is a little bit dated but they're they're still relevant to what's happening so and k max if you guys follow the live stream he's always posting in there so he's got some good questions so his first question is is uh resulting from the gop debates did it become clear that without Trump, the talk becomes tax cuts, China, and fighting socialism? Even on crime and immigration, the candidates say we need to welcome them in and make legal immigration easier, and crime is a mental health crisis. Has Trump not moved the party more populous at all? What do you think of the GOP debates last week? Um, yes, I think it's actually, it's really, I don't want to give DeSantis too much credit, but DeSantis and Vivek are the, like the only two people who show any type of change of Trump. The problem with DeSantis is that he is his personality and he doesn't go far enough. But DeSantis and Vivek are the only ones not, you know, wanting to move the party in a different direction. But on immigration, you know, it wasn't too bad. It's like pretty much the entire, you know, even Tim Scott was talking about how we need to get rid of birthright citizenship. And Vivek is talking about how we need to get rid of birthright citizenship. So they're moving in a right direction on some things. And Trump has moved the party, I don't like the term populist, but more nationalist. Uh, it, they have moved it on. The problem is, is a lot of its leaders haven't gotten with the program. And we can see that with Nikki Haley. We can see that with Tim Scott. We can see that with Mike Pence. And even Doug Burgum and all these guys. They haven't really gotten up, woken up to the memo. A few people are, and that's and they're some of the candidates that are getting more uh, notice than any other of the candidates. So I think it is a matter of just where you're looking. But the party hasn't advanced as much as we'd like. And that's why there's a lot more work to be done to get them to saying we need we need to restrict legal immigration. We need to not we need to come down hard on crime. We need to cut birthright citizenship. We need to be more critical of foreign interventionism. We need to stop waving the Israeli flag like it's our own. Those are the type of things we need to push the GOP in the right direction on. And I feel that it'll t it's just going to take time. You need more leaders like Trump to advance that. And that's why I always prefer Trump over DeSantis, because I, he, Trump, unlike DeSantis, has the ability to advance the party more in that direction. DeSantis just represents the old line party accommodating the new, the new Trumpism and what they think it should be like. And rather than being a total advancement of America first policies. And Trump has that ability to advance the party. He has that charisma and that dynamism to make our policies at the core and the mainstream of the party. And so the, it's yeah, it's definitely disappointing with how like some people really aren't advancing, you know, in some leadership. But it'll take time. And the effort is moving in the right direction. Uh, you just need to make sure that people, it doesn't just become the whole insane clown party. One thing I do worry about is that the GOP is waking up and they're deciding to just be more stupid <laughs> with some of the people just waking up, uh, especially with some of the conspiracy theory stuff and other things. But um, And that's even some uh, of the way I think with like the change on Israel stuff is that a lot of conspiracy theories are such a big part of right wing uh, now is that and conspiracy and the conspiracy theory mindset does not lend to a lot of support for Israel, and so people follow down rabbit holes, which it leads to some good stuff. You know, it leads them to question the government 
and to maybe question some of our foreign policy. But at the same time, it can lead people down to a lot of stupidity. Um, but I, I, you know, it's it's just one problem we have. But a lot of the party is advancing in the right direction. You just these are growing pains we're having, and hopefully the party settles on this and moves forward. And I'm more confident that the party is a lot better than it was 10 years ago. So that's always something I want to say. It's unfortunate that this isn't fully represented in the debate, but there is progress, as can be seen in Vivek, and to a lesser extent, Ron DeSantis. And so his next question he has, Scott, are you saying that even though NHL has a demographics, it cannot be a Greer rule for us to support? In your view, it will never overtake baseball, even in popularity in America. Americans will still go to NFL, NBA, MLB, and then NHL in terms of popularity for team sports. I'm just saying it's more exciting than baseball. I just think it's more my, uh, you know, just like I grew up in the South. I think it's, I think it's harder for Americans to get into as to overtake it in popularity because fewer Americans play it. It's like every kid, or at least when I was growing up, every kid played baseball. Very few kids played hockey, especially in my, especially in my area. I grew up where it rarely snowed. So we were not that into hockey. We didn't even have a formal hockey team in my high school. We had a club team, and we had like every damn sport imaginable at my high school. And of course, all the, you know, the college I went to and all these SEC schools don't only have club hockey teams. So it's, uh, it's a... Um, it's not something that is like as big throughout the country because a lot of this country doesn't experience snow. And I think, you know, depending on the person, you know, I think it's more exciting than baseball, but baseball is more something that more Americans play and have more contact with than they do with the NHL. Um, I, but it's like, I, I didn't say it was not a Greer rule for us to support. I still support NHL. NHL is still fine to watch. I mean, it's really mainly the NBA. Uh, due to It's NBA and MLS for very different reasons. MLS is just like the total Redditor sport. Everyone there is a leftist who's watching it. Uh, I view it as a, a threat to America for this to become popular. So I'm very opposed to MLS. And they have like anti like their fans, like a lot of their like clubs, like fan clubs that they have around these teams are Antifa. And that's like, why would you support that sport? It makes the NFL look like, uh, like the Franco league, you know, of how right wing they are. So no, I never said that it like, it can't be a career rule for us to sport. I just saying like, why I'm not as into it as I am. Cause I just didn't grow up around it. I didn't grow up playing it. I didn't grow up. My family wasn't in, that into watching it, but if your family was, it's still a great sport to watch. If you want to watch it, just not the sport I have most um, knowledge of or most contact with or familiarity with as other sports. So, um, yeah, it's never been a, a never been a, a Greer rule to not to support. No, and the demographics make it a reason to support it. So, uh, hockey is fully fully allowed under the Greer head pledge. So I just wanted to say this. And the next, so moving on to the next question. The next question is from John. It's like, good evening, Scott. <laughs> good evening. We like the good evening. Do you keep up with fitness content? There is a YouTuber, Sam Sulek, who has recently gained a lot of popularity. He is obviously on a lot of steroids. 
Um, I guess that's based. <laughs> I was surprised at how many people do not carry that he does a ton of steroids and how normalized being steroids is within fitness circles. Is there anyone at your gym that looks like they are on steroids? As I've gotten more into fitness in the gym, this has really surprised me. Now, I've been to a lot of gyms where it's like full-on steroid <laughs> use. Uh, I remember there was one in, um, in the D.C. area I went to uh, that had like a really... Uh, you know, I had like a basement gym and it was like, there was no music playing, you know, it was like a lot of older equipment and there were a ton of guys on gear and stuff. Um, I, uh, if you want to be on steroids, I don't know if I would put that as a pledge. I do, you know, you do have a lot of health risks putting on steroids. I did know one guy who did steroids and he would just go and do shoulder shrugs and, and like, uh, like joke workouts like that and I was like what's the what's the point of doing steroids if you're just doing shoulder shrugs you know you're supposed to go there and do like heavy deadlifts and stuff it's like that's not the point of steroids to do like accessory workouts um so yeah no they're all on steroids like steroid use I remember growing up is like that was something because there was the controversy around steroid use in baseball and professional sports and there was a lot of, you know, that that was cheating and it's like a bad health effects. But now it's like steroid use is just totally accepted because like drug use in general has been totally accepted in America. And it's a part of that. Um, you know, I'm not as opposed to it as smoking weed, but I, I do think a little, you know, you do have a lot of other problems that come from steroid use that I think a lot of people uh, don't acknowledge, but if you really want to just get massive, you know, huge, and you're willing to put in the uh, effort to take in steroids, then I, I guess go for it. But um, there's definitely a lot of health risks for it. That would not be, and if I ever did a Greer Head pledge, I would not put, I will take steroids. I don't take steroids at all. I don't take any uh, performance enhancers. I don't even really keep up with the fitness content. And sometimes I will like see like things as like how to, you know, better ways uh, of a form and like some other techniques to do. And I'll sometimes look up that or some workouts that I should add. But it's not like I'm that obsessed with it. It's just generally, it's just something I do four times a week to stay in shape and stay healthy. Um, my body type is probably not meant to be uh, a jacked uh, bodybuilder type, a uh, total ectomorph, <laughs> uh, ultimate ectomorph over here. But it's like, you got to stay in shape. You got to work out. A lot of people always like wonder because other people's content, it's all about like hit the gym, hit, get heavy. And it's like everyone else is doing that. And I don't really do that, but I actually do work out. You got to stay in shape. Got to stay in healthy. Got to keep your heart. Got to keep your heart strong and healthy. Got to look good. Got to not be obese. So I always support that. But I don't really follow uh, fitness content a lot. I have a lot of friends do. So I'd probably ask them about that. But yeah, steroid use is just uh, out of, off the charts. But I think it's just going along with like drug use in general has been accepted. And I don't think it's the the best thing in the world. But I. Uh, between steroids and weed, I would have to say, um, we are. I would have to say at least steroids you're getting a benefit from. <laughs> so, but I would definitely not recommend it. It's not on the Greer Head um, pledge of recommended items. I don't do it. I think there's a lot of problems that come from it, but uh, it's not like weed. So that's it. And now for our final question, and from who else it is. But New England refugee, he is back and with another a brilliant question 
for Highly Respected to end the show. And his question is, hey, Scott, do you think being gay, lesbian, or bisexual is genetic? I think it's mostly genetic. Uh, some people will get upset about this, but who would want, like, even gays will tell you. It's like, who would want to be, like, gay? If they had a choice, they would choose to be straight. Because the type of life they live, the type of things that they're not able to experience, like, you know, they're not able to have a normal family. They're not able to have the kid of their own with the spouse they want to choose. And there's, like, so many gays who are still in the closet and try to be straight. Uh, it's not as ex- It's not as common now. But because now everyone's pushed, uh, you know, is allowed to come out of the closet and there's a lot of benefits from being a protected class. But I think for it is mostly genetic. Now, sometimes like I don't think for some people, it's not like they're they're predestined, like they like they have no choice over this. For some people, it is a choice. Like some people, um, you know, like Barack Obama, because <laughs> he experimented on homosexuality in college. They have a choice whether to be straight or gay. And for Barack Obama, he chose to be uh, straight, uh, I guess. <laughs> At least officially. I don't think he uh, I don't think he had homosexual relations outside of college. But uh, maybe we'll find out in a biography 20 years from now that that's not the case. But it, it doesn't appear that he was because um, he always was trying to marry a woman. And it seems I, I think it was just a, a little phase that he had. But, you know, he could have chosen to become gay, but he chose to become straight. And I think there's some people like that where it becomes a choice, but it is mostly genetic. It is something that you're, you know, an attraction that comes with you at birth. Because if, if it was a fully a choice, you know, and sometimes there's the circumstances that change people. Like, you know, there is a high number of people who are gay, you know, bisexual and all their things. And they've had sexual abuse as children. And, you know, that becomes, uh, that makes them on that path. But I think in some ways the genetics are already there um, for these people. I don't think it's like every one of them is sexually abused as a child. I think it's mostly the genetics are built in. And maybe that experience made them decide to be fully gay. But if anyone had, if it was totally down to choice, nothing to do with genetics, We'd have far, we'd have hardly any gays because everyone would, cho- most people would choose to be straight, and I think it's just that they are a kid growing up and uh, they're not like other kids, <laughs> so they, it's, uh, I would say it's mostly genetic, but there's still, for a lot of them, it's a choice, and I think the way that society you get additional status with being gay and you, you know, benefits, like I think there's certain people like Pete Buttigieg, I think. 30 years ago, he would have been just straight. But now that he uh, advanced his political career, he chose to be he chose to be gay. Uh, <laughs> I think he's not even, you know, I always like that theory that he's actually not gay at all. Like he's totally straight. And this is just like showing how much of a sociopath it is he is that he just did this to advance his uh, his career. Um, but I think I think for someone like him, he would have, you know, he'd been absolutely straight. A few years ago, and some of it is like their social circles of how acceptable it is. Like a lot of artists, you know, over time that they're around people like that, and this is even in the past, and they chose to be um, gay. But I think it's the genetics are already there. You're not if you don't have like what's called the gay gene, you're not going to be gay. Okay, it's not like some guys like totally, you know, grew up. He's totally into women. He's like, oh. It's like boobs, wow! And then some days, like, oh, you know what? I think I'm gay. 
you know, nobody's going to switch their mind like that. It has to be something inborn and genetic. So that's it for Highly Respected today. That's my final take on things. We're going to have another incredible IQ supplement later this week and another great comm. So be on the lookout for that. So until next time, stay respected.